Well, this morning I want to minister to you on preconceived notions. I've subtitled it, Putting God in Our Little Box. Because you know, what happens uh, for for believers and and non-Christians alike is we tend to limit what God can do based on our experience. Now, we seem, a lot of people seem to think that God is going to be much like our natural father, our experience with our natural father. So if you've had a poor experience with your natural father, then you know, people th- seem to think that God is, is vengeful or he's always mad at him waiting to be messed up or, or there's no way that he could love me. He's just looking out to get me. And uh, you know, that's, it's a terrible thing that, that we tend to project our ideas of what a father is on what God is, even though that God is going to be a much better father than, than even the best earthly father could ever obtain. The other thing that we tend to do is we project what we, we see God to be in TV and movies. And I've told you guys before, but that's me growing up. That's what I did. I, I, God in my head was developed off of the opinions of others. Not me spending time on the Word, but the opinions of others, whether it be TV or cartoons or even uh, you know, good intention family members and friends. But we tend to... to shape who God is based on what's going on in our life. Matter of fact, that's how most uh, gods that aren't gods are created, is, is that man is trying to explain something, an experience that they've had, so they shape a god based on their experience. We also tend to limit what we think God can do by what we think is possible. You know, the, the bigger the problem, the greater level of faith required on our part. Truthfully, it only takes a small amount of faith to be saved. We, we don't seem to be, once we decide we need to uh, give our lives to God, most of us, actually all Christians, have, have exercised that amount of faith. We don't seem to think that sometimes to be that great of an idea to place our faith in God. But when we start talking about, about you know, getting healed, I mean, sometimes just putting faith in God to, to heal a headache is a much larger amount of faith required on our parts to make that, uh, to make that, that reality happen, to make the truth of the Word of God a, a reality in our lives. But we, we limit God to what we think is possible. I, uh, I've heard it said by people that, you know, oh yeah, I'm trusting God, but I'm, I'm a realist. You know, when they're praying for healing or something, you know, we want someone to be healed of cancer. Oh, I'm a realist, so I'm preparing for the worst. Because in our head, cancer can't be cured like that. You know, this stuff can't happen like that. So, so we, uh, we limit what God can do based on what we think is possible. But the truth is, God is entirely too big to be placed in one of our little boxes. I mean, God, uh, God's ways are not our ways. And the truth is that, that he, he may well and actually very often does things that are outside of, of our expectations. He does things in ways that are definitely different than how we would do it. How many times in our life have we been disappointed in God because he's doing something, but it's, it's not the way we wanted it done? Or how many times have you sat down and began to explain to God how he should operate in your life? I know I have. You know, I... I <laughs> we're going to talk a lot about the experience of planning this church because uh, today I'll mention quite a few experiences I've had with it because a lot of times I've, I've you know, sat down and told God how I think it should go. And so far that hasn't worked out well for me at all. And for some reason he always wins those arguments. But uh, the truth is that, that God does things in ways that are totally different than how I would do them quite often. We're going we're gonna to look at one main story, the story of Naaman this morning. Some of you know who Naaman is. Some of you may not have never even heard of who Naaman is in the Old Testament. But uh, 
we're going to look at his life, and, then, and that's going to be the main focus. And then we're going to look at a bunch of different areas where God worked outside of what I think would be our common uh, conceptions of how God would work, how we would do things. So the first scripture we're going to look at is 2 Kings 5, 1 through 3. And this is the story of Naaman. In verse 1 it says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the kings of Aram, was a great man with his master, and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man also was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Now Naaman is the king, not of, or not a king, he's a, a, a captain of the army, not of Israel, but of, of, at this point they're at peace, but not too long ago they were enemies, they were at war together. Matter of fact, it talks about here this little serving girl that he had taken captive from the land of Israel. So he's not Jewish, he's uh, serving the, the king of Aram Damascus, which is Ben-Hadad II, and uh, Basically, he's number two in command. He's thought of extremely highly. He's been very victorious. As, as Israel's begun to, to turn away from God and, and become apostate, the, the uh, Aramis has had great success in warring with Israel. And, and that's basically, his success was built on warring with Israel. He had many victors, and he was just extremely successful as a captain. And we'll see as we go on how he's treated by even his king because, because of the work that he's done for him. Now, the weird thing that we see here is that he's this great man in high power, but he's a leper. Now, in the Jewish culture, if you're a leper, you're booted out of the camp, and you have to live outside the city walls. And anytime you come in, you've got to run around with a bell, dinging it around, yelling, unclean, unclean, so somebody doesn't touch you or get near you. But in other societies, being a leper, as long as it didn't interfere with your job, they, weren't, they didn't ostracize you, they didn't. And the difference is, is that, that God was, was looking for a people to be set apart. He didn't want a people to be like everybody else, which is why the, the Jewish culture treated things differently. But in this case, he's a leper, and, uh, but he's still a man high in power. But even with all this position, with all this fortune and even fame in his land, everything that he has, I mean, he has everything that he can need. He has servants, he has money, he has success, he has everything. But he's still got a disease, a leper. And, and being a leper, that's terminal. That's not a, uh, you know, give it a few days and you're going to get over it. it. It will kill you. You know, and we know leprosy to be the, uh, as, you know, as your flesh begins to, to deteriorate and parts of your body fall off, and it's a pretty nasty disease. But he's got this, this little slave, and this is such a strange thing for me, because this little girl, probably 12 years old or around there, maybe a little bit younger, she's got such a heart for God. Now, in a raid, they had captured her, and now she's serving Naaman's wife. And... Most likely they're taking care of her because she doesn't have hatred for them. But can you imagine in this position as a slave, as a captive, wanting your, cap, your, 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 your owners to, to become better, to prosper them? Wouldn't you want for them to die? Maybe things would change. But this little girl, she says, Mistress, I wish that my master were with a prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. So strange for me to see this little girl with the heart of God. She's being a witness to, the, to, this, to this heathen nation, showing the love and heart of God. But is it so strange? I, you know, I'm reading this, I'm like, man, what is she doing? But if you remember in Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
You know, this, isn't, this shouldn't be a strange thought for us. This should be our normal, every, everyday course of life. When people are treating us poorly, we should be praying for them to be blessed and prospered and that God would touch their lives. And then even more so, I look at this and think, not only is she a slave operating in a very godly manner when she, in, in the worldly sense of view, has every right to not be, but she's young. She's only 12 years old, maybe younger. And God is going to, you're going to see as we look at the story, God uses her to impact an entire nation through this man Naaman. And I find it amazing that, that uh, once again, we tend to put God in his box. God's going to use this little girl to change kings and even a nation. I mean, she's going to make a huge difference in this land through this one man Naaman because of his power, all because a little girl stood up and said, you know what, I'm going to show the love of my God. And all the time we try to limit what the kids in our church can do. Oh, no, you can't do that. You can't, you know, that's, that's not for you. Wait till you get older. Because we tend to put God in a box. But the truth is God can't be put in a box. He can use everybody, even our children, which is why when we send them out there, we're not sugarcoating the gospel for them. We're making it a way that they can understand, but we're telling them the truth of the matter, and we're going to let them be mighty men and women of God. Amen? So let's keep going. In 2 Kings 5, 4-7, through 7, it says, Naaman went in and told his master, he's talking to King Ben-Hadad II, told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I a god to kill and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. See, the truth is, is that Naaman doesn't know this girl's God. But like even today, modern day cancers or modern cancer modern day cancer sufferers will go out and, and often, especially as they get worse and nothing's working, they begin to to look for anything that can help them. I mean you there's scams all over the internet that are trying to take advantage of people that are willing to try everything to be made whole. So like Naaman, he doesn't really know this God, he doesn't trust in this God, but he wants to be whole. He's, this is gonna kill him. So he he takes the chance and goes and talks to his king. And the truth is, Naaman is rich and powerful. He has everything he needs. I imagine that if anything could have been done, he spent the money to try to get it done. And he understands there's nothing that can be done for his condition. So he goes to his king. And this king, you've got to imagine the amount of respect this king has for Naaman to say, all right, go out on this, this, this whim, this hope, you know, this, this uh, you know, it's probably not going to work. But you know what, I'm going to call the, I'm going to send word to the king of Israel, who currently they're at peace, but not too long ago, the two king's fathers were at war with each other. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, at, they're at peace right now, but this king is now sending a letter regarding his servant, Naaman, who had previously been to war with Israel, saying, hey, you need to, you need to heal my uh, servant. I know you have somebody there that can heal my servant. You need to go ahead and do this. And you've got to imagine, you know, what the, the possibilities that could happen when two nations, this is, this is national policy. This isn't just two guys talking to each other. I mean, nations could go to war as a result of this. And he's so respected by his king, the king goes ahead and says, you know what, go ahead and do what you've got to do. He sends a letter to the king of Israel, and then he sends him with uh, what they, their idea of what God would need to make Naaman well. 
They begin to construct their little box of of who this God might be. And of course, if we want the king of Israel to make something happen and this God to move, we're going to have to send them some money. So this this, uh, seven, or what is it, uh, ten talents of silver, that's about 750 pounds of silver. And this right here, the thousand shekels of gold, that's about 150 pounds of gold. And then ten changes of clothes. I wonder what their value system was back there because 150 pounds of gold, 750 pounds, we'll top, we'll, we'll, uh, top it off with, with uh, 10 changes of clothes. It, it just seems odd to me. I don't know, I guess not anybody else, just me? All right, we'll pass, we'll, we'll go on. So anyway, he brings all this stuff thinking that, uh, you know, that, that, that I'm going to be saved if I just bring enough to God. If I just do enough, I'm going to be saved. But the truth is that with God, it's always faith that saves. And we can use that as an example for us that there's nothing that we can bring to God that's going to make us right before Him. The only way to become right before God is to receive what He has given to us. And then also in their little idea of how God works, is they, they thought that the king could order this prophet of God to do whatever he wanted. They thought that this king could order the prophet to order God to do whatever he wanted. Once again, this, this idea of how God works is, is shaped by our little box. So then it gets there. The king of Israel gets this letter, and he is just stressed out. Because now he's, he's the king, and he's like, this is a political thing. Basically, the king of uh, Aram Damascus is sending me this letter to start a war. He's like, I'm not God. I, I can't heal this man of leprosy. I can't do this. And he's telling me that I need to do this. He's just trying to start a fight. He's just trying to start a war. See, the first thoughts of this king of Israel is that uh, uh, Jerome, I think his name, or Jerem, I think his name is, is, is he, his first thought is that, uh, is that this is, this is a, a sign for war. His first thought is political and personal um, reasons for what's going on. He never thinks to God. He never thinks that, you know, the first thing you should have done was call the prophet and say, hey, what do we do here? But instead, it's all political and personal for him. So in 2 Kings 5.8, we start talking about Elisha, who's the, who's the prophet that's been talked about. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and you shall know that there is a prophet of Israel. Now, when Elijah heard that Joram, the king of Israel, was distressed, he sent word to him. Basically, Elijah knows what's going on in the town. He heard what's happening. And uh, the truth is that Joram should have sent word to Elisha himself. You know, that the, the, in, in Isaiah, we learned that Israel was to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be ministering and being a light to the nations. Joram could have used this opportunity to, to actually forge peace and bond and actually tell this nation about the God of Israel, the, the God of all the world. But instead, he just was concerned about himself. So basically what Elisha is saying is, what are you worried about? Why aren't you trusting God? Why are you trying to trust in yourself and not trusting God? And the truth is that this is probably an affront to the king. Elijah's being a little bit cocky. He's being a little bit, you know, he's, he's trying to make, to make the king feel a little bit bad. What are you doing? Send him to me. But the king doesn't get upset because he realizes this is kind of a way for him to save face. This is a way to stop, some, stop war. And so he's like, you know what? I'll let him get away with it. Let him have his thing. But the thing was, is there may have been a king on the throne in Israel, but there was a prophet in the nation of Israel well, one that could channel the power of God, one that was equipped to handle this request, and one that was going to, to use this to, to change a man. So let's keep looking at the story. 
In 2 Kings 5, 9 through 11, we see that it says, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Now I've, I've entitled this slide, Behold, I Thought, because that'll get you in a lot of trouble <laughs> if you just start thinking of how you would do things, how the way it's supposed to be, instead of basing what you think on the word of God. See, Naaman... He's a pretty powerful man, and he expected to be received by a powerful man. He expected to receive him like a king would receive him, with, with gifts and showering of honor, and, and much like a prince would be received. Because this is how kings did things. Elijah doesn't even go out to see him. Elijah, Elijah's like, I can't even be bothered to leave my tent. Hey, messenger, go, go tell him this. So, so the messenger goes out there and says to him, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. So now, Naaman is ticked. He's like, this guy won't come out and see me. Who does he think he is? Doesn't he know who I am? What is, what's going on? Doesn't he know what's going on? And he says he was furious. And he went, he went away and behold and said, I thought. Behold, I thought. He will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. See, Naaman had this idea of how it was going to work. You know, Naaman thought that he was going to show up the prophet was going to come out because he had sent him all kinds of gold and, and silver. And, and obviously, if he did that, then this prophet has to act. And God has to act. And he was going to come out and, you know, he was going to throw back his robe and put up his staff and put on, you know, lights were going to go off. Maybe they'd put up a stage. They're going to have fireworks. I mean, they were going to really, they were going to make a big deal out of this. He was going to come out and do all this stuff. He had this preconceived notion of how God was going to work. And that's not what happens. And now he's mad because... Not that God wasn't willing to move. God was willing to cure this man. God wanted to cure this man. Actually, God had already made provision for this man to be cured. But because it didn't happen the way he wanted, it almost didn't happen at all. He was furious and he ran away from God saying, you're not doing this the way that I'm doing this. You know, I experienced the same thing in my life, particularly with this church, because when I started started this process and we're looking for places and, and we're going through all this stuff and, and I was like, I'm not doing a house church. I wouldn't go to a house church, so I'm not doing a house church. Because this is, this is how I would do it. I mean, you get better get me a place, God. I ain't not in my house. So that's, that's, that was my idea of how church was going to be. And uh, then God says, now nah, we're going to do it in your house. I'm a little upset about that because, one, I wouldn't have gone to a house church. I, you know, I'll be honest with you. God likes to, you know, I think God likes to, I could have learned to stop telling God what I won't do because I think he gets a kick out of making me do it anyway. I'm like, I wouldn't, I'm not going to have house church and I wouldn't go. It's like, well, you are having one and because it's in your house, you're going. So I've done both of those things. And, but that's basically what's happening here. He's like, you know what, I have an idea of how this is supposed to work. And it didn't happen that way. So he's, he's mad. He's upset. Now, I came to realize after a little bit of arguing and fighting that, you know what, God, I'm just going to do it your way. 
because that you, you know, this is your church. This is your kingdom you're trying to build. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to get out of the way and, and do it your way. And I'm so thank God that I did because you know, there's, there's five families that are here regularly that uh, I wouldn't have the opportunity to be ministering to and working alongside had, had I been disobedient and just been furious and walked away. So the next verse in 2 Kings 5, 12-14, it says, this is Naaman speaking, Are not Abinah and Parpar, Farpar, something, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I uh, not wash them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. I mean, Naaman's really upset. Not only is he upset about uh, it not happening the way he wanted it to happen, but now he's, he wants them to wash in, the, in the, the, the River Jordan, which is apparently kind of a dirty, muddy river. And he's like, aren't the rivers in my homeland the really nice rivers, the clean, pristine rivers? Couldn't I have just washed in those? I mean, he traveled probably over 100 miles from Damascus to get down to Samaria, where the prophet is, and now he's ticked off. He's got to go a few more miles to this river because it didn't happen the way he wanted it. But he's like, man, what's wrong with my rivers? Why am I having to? You ever notice that God will sometimes make you do things that, that uh, maybe you didn't want to do or a little bit different than how you're doing just so you'll, you'll stop getting over that pride? Get over that, that pride of how you would do things or this is my way or I'm doing it myself. My rivers are better than, than your rivers. This pride that Naaman has. Get a, get a bumper sticker that says, my rivers are better than your rivers. <laughs> So then it says, Then his servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you some, to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says, Wash and be clean? So finally Naaman gets over himself. And he says, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child, and he was clean. You know, truthfully, pride and offense will get you in all kinds of trouble. You know, we start this story off with a little servant girl speaking to Naaman and sending him on this journey. And then Naaman's about to screw it up when another one of his servants says, you know what, if he had told you to go out and and slay some mighty beast, if he had told you to go out and, and slay, you know, 500 soldiers with just a, a wet noodle, you would have went out there and done that because that, you know, you, that's something that you did. Because you could have had some pride in how good you did to earn your healing. And he's basically saying that. If he would have told you to do something great, go conquer a nation, go do this stuff, would you not have done it? Why wouldn't you just go wash and be clean? It's such a simple thing. You know, sometimes we, people think the same way when it comes to salvation as well. They can't possibly fathom that they don't have to do something to receive salvation, that, that God gives it freely as a gift to all those who will believe in Him and call on His name. They think they have to accomplish them. They have to do all these things. There's these steps that they have to fulfill if they want to be saved. And it's so easy to get roped in that way. There's entire denominations based on that way of thinking about what you have to do to be right with God. So then as we go on, not only does God restore him, like he said he would, if he, as soon as Naaman humbled himself and, and says, you know what, I'm going to do what God asked me to do. I, I understand that it's not the way that I would do things, but I'm going to humble myself and do what God says because basically his, his servant stood up and opened his eyes. So he went down and cleaned himself, and he comes out, and, and it doesn't say that... that uh, 
that he was just healed and made better. But it says that his flesh was restored like that of the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. See, God did even more than what his expectations were. In Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. You know, God's able to do in your life more than you would ever think or expect. You know, God did that very same thing to me. Said I'd never be in a home church. I'll never, never do it in a home church. And because it won't work. I wouldn't go to one. Why would anybody else go to one? And I look out today and I see that God's done more than I could ever expect. You know, I've, I've been spared a lot of the, uh, the stuff that other of church plants I've seen. I've, you know, they've started and, and they've, they've preached to empty chairs for, for months before anybody finally showed up. And I thank God on the first day, you know, we had most of you in this room here. And it wasn't long after everyone else was here. I thank God that, that God was able to do more than I could ever think or ask. He's an amazing God. And interesting to note that in all this time, we'll see that Jesus says in, in one of the Gospels that uh, no leper was healed in Israel in all this time. Jesus says that there was lots of lepers during this time, but no leper in Israel was healed. The only one who was healed was this guy Naaman. You know, Israel had turned their back on God. They were, they were running away from God in that time, and God couldn't work in their life because they had placed God in a, in, in somewhere else. They'd put them in their own little box on how God would work and how, what they could do. And they had pushed God away, but God was able to work in this man's life because he humbled himself and did what God asked. So then in 2 Kings 5, 15 through 19, we're actually, yeah, we'll keep going here. It says, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged them to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. So he just departed from him some distance. You know, because he finally submitted to God, God was able to work in Naaman's life. And even though it wasn't in the way that Naaman was doing it, matter of fact, this is pretty unconventional means as far as Naaman was concerned. And you know, God will work in your life, and, and sometimes he'll work in ways that you expect, and other times he'll work in, in unconventional ways. And we need to be willing to let God move and not limit God to what we think is possible, but what he thinks is possible. And then, so Naaman, he has this amazing miracle happen, and, he, and he has a tra- Naaman is a changed man. He has a transformation. He comes up to the prophet before. He came to the prophet expecting the prophet to run out to meet him. But now he comes to the prophet with, this idea, with a new idea, knowing that, you know what? God is God in Israel. God's the one I'm going to honor. I don't need to be honored, but I'm going to honor him. And matter of fact, and he doesn't quite know how to do that, so he says, you know what, Elijah? I have a bunch of presents and gold and silver for you. I want to give you this because of what God did. And Elisha says, no, I will take nothing, because one, Elisha recognized that it wasn't him that did it. 
Elisha recognized that he's not the one. It was God. Why? Elisha didn't want some, some lavish present for what God had accomplished. He wasn't going to take credit for that. Also, he had the opportunity to, to, to continue teaching Naaman that there's nothing that you can do to earn this. You didn't get this gift because you were going to give me something. No, this, this gift of salvation to you was free. Just like in our lives, salvation is free. You know, Naaman's just a brand, you know, it's, it's like meeting with somebody when we just get with a brand new Christian. Doesn't know quite how everything works, but something's changed inside of them. And they're trying to feel their out. They're trying to work out this salvation. They're trying to figure it out. That's what Naaman's doing here. So Elisha takes this opportunity to teach him. And then once again, Naaman's still not quite sure how things are working. He's got this false idea of God. See, the truth is, in this time, that a nation's God was tied to the land that they lived on. So Naaman says, all right, then if I can't give you anything, please let me take two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, no least sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. He wants to take this earth with him because he thinks that the only way he can honor God or speak to God, even though he had just said that I understand that there is no God in all the earth, but he says, let me take this land with me so I can continue to honor God. Now, truthfully, we look at this and we see that, one, we recognize that he still has a skewed understanding of who God is. He's putting God into his experience and his expectations, but he's growing, he's moving, because even taking this earth back is a step of faith for him. Because when he gets back home, people are going to ask, hey, what's the, what's the bucket of dirt for? What's the, the cart of dirt for? And he's going to have to explain why he brought this back. He's, he's going to have to minister to people and have his testimony preached of what happened. So it is still a step of faith. And it's, it's a growing step. He's, he's growing. But he also recognizes that when he gets back that his master, is the king of, of, of uh, Aram Damascus, is, is, uh, is still going to be worshiping their God. And he's in service to his king. And basically he tells Elijah, you know, please you know, let God pardon me because if I go into worship with my, with my master because I have to go in there as, as his commander to service him and, and, he, and he has me uh, bow down in this house, know that I'm, I'm going through the actions, I'm going through the ritual, but my heart's not in it. And please pardon me for this. I have to do what I have to do because this is my job, but, but uh, my heart's not in it and my heart belongs to the Lord. He makes a commitment to make sacrifices to no other God but, but the God of Israel. Naaman, you have to understand that Naaman is a completely changed man by what just happened. Because he was willing to submit himself to God. It turned his entire life around. And the truth is, he's gonna, God is going to use Naaman to change the nation. I mean, what kind of testimony is this guy going to bring back with him to where he came from and say, look what God did to me. It's like that uh, the Sumerian woman that ran back that says, let me tell you about, about uh, Jesus, the man who told me about everything I ever did. And she, she she's, a, she's a Sumerian, she's a Gentile, gets an entire town worshiping and honoring Jesus because of the testimony she made. Same thing here. He's, Naaman's going to touch a nation. God's going to work through this little servant girl to change a nation. And we're going to start looking at some other situations uh, of where God doesn't work in ways that we would expect Him to work. In Acts 13, 44 through 46, we actually talked about this briefly at the Bible study. It says, The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. 
Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Or repudiate it. Repudiate it? I don't know how to pronounce that word. Repudiate? There we go. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. See, the problem the Jews had was not lack of education. They had the scriptures. They knew who... They, they, they had all the scriptures that prophesied of Jesus coming. They knew that there was a Messiah coming. And if they would have just took the time to, to actually read what the scriptures were saying instead of creating their own little box of who the Messiah was going to be. Jesus came in a way they didn't expect. They expected the Messiah to come as this great, powerful, political and civil leader that was going to rescue them from oppression. But when, when, when Jesus got here, when God came to earth, they, they learned that he wasn't, he wasn't worried about earthly kingdoms. He was worried about his heavenly kingdom. He came to be the ruler over a heavenly kingdom and to free everybody from all the earthly kingdoms and this, this earthly oppression from Satan and the, the ruler of this world to free them into the earthly kingdom. But that's not their box. They're, they had this different idea of who, of who Jesus was supposed to be, this Messiah was supposed to be. So, it says they considered the words of, of Paul and Barnabas, the gospel, to have no value. They said it wasn't worth anything. That's what uh, repudiate means, is to consider it of no value. But Paul says, you know what? It was necessary that we spoke this word to you first. But since you consider it of no value, you judge yourselves of unworthy of eternal life. You know, people say that they can't serve a God that would send people to hell. I've, I've had people say, I, I just can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. But the truth is, God doesn't send anybody to hell. People make the choice to go there on their own. God provides a way for you to be made pure and holy and to be made brand new and have eternal life with Him. See, the thing is, whether you, whether you uh, uh, are saved or not, eternity is still there. The question is, do you have eternal life or do you have eternal death? But you're going to feel it either way. But it's people that judge themselves unworthy because the gift has been offered. Amen. And what about this miracle that happened here when Jesus turns water into wine? Definitely not the way I would have done things. So we read this story here. John 2, 3-10 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? Can you imagine saying that to your mom? Woman, what's that got to do with me? <laughs> Pastor Andy Elms was preaching on this one time, and he says, I can imagine what happened. He's like, he says, woman, what does this have to do with us? And he said his mom pulls her glasses down like this and looks over her eyes at him like, what did you see? He's like, and she wore glasses. I know that because it works with my illustration. <laughs> Funny guy, you have to come see him when he comes down sometime. But he says, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mom said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. You know, there's a few miracles in the Bible that Jesus didn't want to do. Both of them happened because a woman just assumed he was going to do it. There was the woman with the issue of the blood. She touched his garment. She didn't ask Jesus to heal her. She just took it. Same with here. He's like, what is it? it's not my time yet. And he's like, she, she doesn't even... <laughs> She doesn't even continue talking to Jesus. She just turns to the servants. Whatever he says, does it, and walks away. She knows it's going to get done. You know, so 
it says, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Anybody know what the Jewish custom of purification is? It's where they wash their feet. These are the foot washing buckets. As they come in, and they, they, you know, they wash their sandals as they come in. And, and the reason they did that is because when you wear sandals that aren't closed in, you walk around and, I mean, you're walking on all, everything that's on the ground. And, you know, the animals didn't use the outhouse, so you got, you got junk on your feet. So they would have sponges in there or whatever, and they would wash their feet. That's what these big wash pots are for. So Jesus says, fill them up. We're going to turn it into wine. Is that how you would have done things? Like, yeah, give me the nastiest water you can find. The one that's been washing people's nasty feet, and I'm going to turn it into wine. So he takes these, uh, these, these, these uh, buckets full of water, these pits of, pits, pots of water, and it says, uh, <clears throat> they filled them up, and then he said, draw them out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, he did not know where it came from, which is good. <laughs> this is, but, the, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, and the head waiter called the bride. Can you imagine this sermon? Like, I cannot believe I'm taking this to the head waiter. And I, was, I think that's what I was, I just handed it to him and took off, run. <laughs> because really, I mean, think about it. In this time, they would kill the messenger. <laughs> you know, this is... Oh. So, he drinks it, and he's like, man, this is, the, this is the best wine I've ever had. This is... This, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's great. He says to him, Every man serves the good wine first, but when the people here have drunk freely, then serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, what they would do is they would, they would bring out the, uh, the good wine when people first get there, and they would let them drink that. And then after they all got drunk and couldn't taste it anymore anyway, they'd bring out the crappy wine because they wouldn't know the, know the difference. But he's like, no, you, br- you bring out the good wine afterwards. I don't understand. See, once again, God exceeds expectations. He takes what had to have been the filthiest water in the area and turns it into the best wine that these, this bridegroom, you know, this, this uh, waiter's ever tasted. Now, how many of you would have done things like that? You know, if, we would have put, if, if God was stuck in our box, he couldn't have moved in that way. What about this story? Joshua 6, 2 through 5. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city at once. You shall do for six days. And seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Now this, this story brings new, new meaning when you hear, you know, when people be singing, like, man, he's got a powerful voice. This, this voice is knocked down a wall. Now, can you imagine being these soldiers? You're going up against this heavily fortified city, and I've shown you what that, guy, what that wall looks like. It's not a small wall, and it's fortified. And, and uh, they, he goes up to it, and they gather, all right, we've got a plan. This is how we're going to do it. God's with us, and this is how we're going to do it. All right, how are we going to do it? Well, first, we're going to march around the city. All right, all right. And then we're going to yell. We're going to do what? <laughs> how is this going to work? Tell me how. The, I mean, there's... Thousands of people marching around. How is this going to work? Not how we would have done it. 
And we'd have been like, build some siege towers, put some ladders up, build some stuff that can tear down. I mean, we're, or maybe God will, will send down a fireball from heaven that'll blow a hole in the wall. Yeah, that's how we do it. But no, God's like, you know what, this is, this is how I'm going to do it. And if they would have had God stuck in their box, it wouldn't have happened. But they trusted God. And they just yelled with everything that they had. And the walls fell down flat. What about in Luke 2, 4 through 7? The, the, the virgin birth. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And this was Luke 2, 4 through 7. Because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is not how any of us would have made up how to do this story. Virgin birth. First of all, virgins don't give birth. We all know that. That's our box. That's our limitation. So we put God there. And then, all right, so say he does do that. We get, a, we get, we get Jesus coming, God coming in the flesh. How many of you would have sent him to a manger to be born? I mean, if this is my son coming, he's going to be, I'm going to be putting him up in the Hilton. He's going to have nice rooms, silk sheets, all the servants that he needs. And maybe I wouldn't send him as a baby because quite vulnerable as a baby. The most vulnerable you can be. Babies, human babies are helpless, literally. They're helpless, but that's how God sent his son. I don't think that's the way we would have done it. And then what about the whole idea of it in general? Who one of, which one of us would send our son to die for people? And not just any people, but the Bible says that before you accept Jesus, you're an enemy of God. That we are the, the sons of the ruler of this world until we accept Jesus into our heart. So not only did God send his son to die, but he sent his son to die for enemies, people that didn't love him, that didn't know him. Not how I would have done it. I'm so glad God wasn't put in my box. In Romans 9, 10 through 16, it says, Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, that there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Once again, the Jewish people have constructed a box of how God would work. See, the Jews didn't expect God to go to the Gentiles, even though if you look through the scripture, it makes it quite clear that he was going to go to the Gentiles. But it, this wasn't according to their plan, their box, their experience. So Paul's trying to demonstrate that, that, look, it's not what we decide that makes things work. It's not how we view things to be happening. that make, it says, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, a lot of times this verse is used out of context to argue that, that salvation is only for a select few members 
and not for everybody because it says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But if you look at the context of this verse, Paul's not talking about a subset of people being saved and not saved. He's saying that, yes, God is sending salvation to the Gentiles. And they're like, no, he's not sending it to the Gentiles. Salvation is only for the Jews. And God's like, who are you to say who God can show mercy on? Who do you to say who, who God can give this gift of salvation. It's much like the, uh, the parable that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven, about the, the, uh, the wine or the uh, farmer who needed people to work in his, his field. And as he's walking out, he sees these people in the morning, he sees people standing outside looking for work, and he tells them, Are you looking for work? If so, I'll pay you, uh, I'll pay you one day's wages if you come and work for me. One denarii. And then at about lunchtime, he goes and he sees some people standing around again. And he says, hey, why don't you come and work for me? If you come work for me, I'll go ahead and pay you. And then at the end of the day, he goes and, and it's, it's only a couple hours of, of work left. And he sees some people standing around and says, hey, why don't you come work for me? And I'll, I'll go ahead and pay you. Now, he had told the people that started in the morning that he was going to pay them one denarii, one day's wages. So at the end of the day, he comes in and, and he begins to pay uh, his, his people that were working for him. And he starts with the people that worked less and he, he walks up and he pays them one day's wages, even though they only worked a couple hours. Now the people that had worked longer said, wow, those people just worked a couple hours and he paid them a full day's wages. Obviously, I'm going to get more than that. So then the next group came and he, they had only worked half the day and he paid them a full work of wages. And then he got to the people that had worked all day and he paid them the one denarii, his full day's wages, what he said he was going to pay. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? That's not fair. You paid them for only working two hours, the same as you paid us. And he goes, but isn't this what we agreed on? Isn't this, who, who are you to tell me who I can show favor to? Who are you to tell me that I can't pay them as much as I paid you? Basically, the same thing is happening here. It's not that, that salvation is only for a select few. Basically, he's saying, who are you to tell God who he can give salvation to? Who are you to tell God that he can only give it to the Jews? Actually, if you continue reading in, in chapter 20, or verse 20, sorry, uh, Romans 9, verse 20, he says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, What do you make me like this, will it? You know, Paul's just throwing a little jab in them. Who are you, O man, that answers back to God? Let's not be that man, amen? What about Job? This is, Job's uh, an interesting story. But the end of it I find hilarious because I would not want to be in Job's shoes at this particular point in time. In Job 38, 1 through 7, this is the Lord speaking to Job. Uh, the, the story shows it is, is, this is literally God speaking to Job out of a whirlwind. And he says to him, after Job's been whining and saying that God's doing this and that, and, and uh, basically Job is uh, telling God how God should do things. So God says to Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Could you imagine God coming to you and saying, All right, man up, tell me how to do it. Can you imagine that? He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? And where, where its base is sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And if you keep reading this chapter, it just goes on and on. God's like, I did this, where were you? I did this, where were you? Who are you to instruct me? I, can you imagine having God speak to you audibly? Man up, why don't you go and tell me how it is? I, I couldn't imagine being in his shoes.
It's actually funny to me. He begins to tell about how God should be doing things. And the truth is, how many of us have uh, done the same thing? Tells God how we should be doing things. Or how He should be doing things. But the truth is that God doesn't think like we think. His thoughts are not our own. Now I thank God that, that He is patient with us and in our ignorance, He's, and, and truthfully it's kind of arrogance when we begin to tell God how to do things. But and I thank God He loves us and He's patient with us. But man, I'm glad I wasn't Job at that moment. Final verse I want to look at is Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. It says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Basically, what Isaiah is saying is that it wasn't any of us that did these things. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways, and we have no right or even ability to truthfully question how he does things. And when we do, it actually limits God's ability to work in our lives because we think he can only work in a separate way, so we refuse to trust him in other ways. You know, the stories that we've looked at, just a few of them, are just the tip of the iceberg of stories where where God wouldn't have done things probably the way that I would have done it. What about the tree in the garden? Why put the tree in the garden? I wouldn't have done it that way, but... But uh, I've, I've told you guys before why I think it was put there. What about removing Adam and Eve from the garden after the fall? Why would he do that? Why would he kick them out of this paradise? But it was because if they would have stayed in there and ate from the tree of, tree of life after they had that knowledge, then they would have been stuck that way from eternity. It was God's grace that removed them from the garden so he could save us and not make us stuck that way forever. What about the flood in the ark? Now that's a strange story. I'm sure they weren't thinking that's how it was going to work because they had never seen rain before. It hadn't rained before that time. They didn't know what water was. They didn't know what a, why would you need a boat and ark? And can you imagine putting all those things on, I mean, all those animals and, and those people on one, one boat? I mean, not how I would have done things. People were raised from the dead. Remember when the oil was poured that never ran out until she ran out of vessels? You remember the, the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes with just a few fish and a little bit of bread? And probably the biggest one, which I can guarantee you is not the way we would have done it, is salvation by faith. The reason why I can guarantee you that that's not how we would have done it is because every other religion is about us going to God. It's about how we can do things for God, how we can be made right with God. You look at any other religion in this world and it's all about what we can do to make our way to God. Christianity is the only religion where it's about what God did to come to us, what God did to make us whole. We definitely wouldn't have done it that way. And I thank God that if we don't put God in a box, we can let him work in our, in our lives in ways that we wouldn't expect. We have to understand that we don't direct God, but it's him who directs us. And every time that we try to direct, we limit his ability because we're just not as effective at it as he is. We don't have the whole picture and we're not as wise or strong or any of those things. But I thank God that, that we are strong and we, are, we do have wisdom and we let God work through us instead of trying to tell God how he should work. The truth is, the box that we'll put God in, no matter how big we think it is, no matter how great our imagination, is too small to contain all that he wants to do in our lives. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's go ahead and uh, stand up and we'll uh, dismiss the service.